Hey guys, Pastor Mike Reed here. Thankful that God led you to tune into this video sermon. Uh, our prayer is very simple. We pray that God would use the preaching of God's Word uh, to grow you more in the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray it blesses you, nourishes you, and encourages you. Mike. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Happy New Year. Hopefully you guys had a good holiday season. Um, if you're new with us, we want to just extend a special welcome to you. Uh, maybe I've just spoke to a couple people this morning. It was the first time coming to church here at Church of Bergen. Uh, so there's probably some of you that are here now. Just want to extend a special welcome to you. Always want to make it abundantly clear. I know that some of you who um, have been coming here for a long time now, this is your um, this is your main church, your member, your, your member here, and so you hear this every single week, but that's how we learn best, by repetition. Uh, so we want to make it real clear that um, we're here to worship Jesus. Uh, whenever the Spirit of God works in a sinner's heart, uh, prior to the Spirit's work in someone's heart, it does not love Jesus, it does not worship Jesus, it is dead to Christ, until the Spirit of God comes in, is poured out upon a human heart to make it awaken, that is, give it new eyes and new feelings and new senses to actually see that Jesus really is who he says he is. He is the Son of God, eternal Son of God. He was never created. He came to die for the sins of the world and raise again from the dead. Whoever believes in him, you will never perish but have everlasting life. We, we come here to worship Jesus. And so and church is not just a strange hobby. Uh, the, the aim of the Christians is to come here and have their hearts find more hope, more rest, more love, more worship of Jesus. And so everything we do here on Sundays uh, serves that aim. And so nothing here is an, is an end in itself. It's meant to lead you to the ultimate aim of treasuring Jesus. So we take the Lord's Supper every single week. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of my sermon. Uh, and we preach the Bible. We believe it is the Word of God that it will never lead us astray. Everything that it talks about, it tells the truth. It never leads us astray. It never lies. Uh, we can stand upon it and preach it as it, if, if it is the very words from God. And we also sing songs that center upon Jesus and who he is. Uh, it's his breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to him. Uh, I was just reading this morning in my devotionals of how God poured out his spirit upon him. The, the spirit of God is one of the persons of the Trinity. And so God, as it were, is pours himself out upon sinners and how, how generous God would be to pour himself out by his spirit on our hearts. Uh, and so because God has been so generous, not only with his spirit, but even giving us his son, he did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all. We too, in an act of worship on Sundays, we are generous. We give uh, and so if, if you've been coming for a while, you know we give in the silver boxes and the back walls, but the exit there. And if you're new with us, I always want to say we're not asking for your money. We're not asking you to open your wallets to us. We just want you to open your hearts to Jesus, not your wallets to Jesus. Uh, and then um, I think that's it, yeah, Lord's Supper, preaching, singing, and giving. That's that good. A uh, couple things before I dive into the sermon. Number one is in our winter and summer semesters, we like to take a pause from our small group ministry known as growth groups and do equip classes. Uh, this week they're starting Tuesday nights. It's going to be a six-week class Tuesday nights on the book of Revelation. Uh, we always want to offer classes that help people read and study the Bible well. And Revelation is just a really tough, tough book. Not many people understand it. Uh, so one of a, a very well studied member of the church who knows this, this book probably better than anyone else in this church is going to be teaching that so you will be much much blessed by it spots are limited so you should sign up online the personal evangelism class is happening on Wednesday 
night taught by a multiple um, people. I'll be one of those people teaching the class, and so you can sign up for that as well uh, online. We're going to be picking it up in First Peter. Uh, we just finished our Herald series uh, in the Advent series, the coming of Jesus, remembering Christ as it came on Christmas morning. I'm get, given the, getting the signal in the back. If you guys can squeeze, if you've got a seat next to you, to your right, if you could maybe just scooch over or not, whatever you want to do. Some people are looking for some seats. You can do that. Um, but we just finished our Herald series. We're going to be jumping back into, oh, Sorry, Step Up Sunday. I almost forgot about this. Thank you. Uh, Step Up Sunday. We've never done this before. Jackie Levesque, our admin director, is putting together, uh, you know, this Sundays don't happen by themselves. A lot of people who are not on staff don't get paid. They give their volunteered time to keep this running every Sunday. Uh, and, and as a Christian, you know, we, it's, it's a joy to serve. It's a joy to give our time. Uh, and so we want to, on January 26th, kind of like a group connect, we offer, just have, have let you guys see all the different groups that are being offered. Uh, Step Up Sunday is a time to offer for you guys to see all the different avenues that you can plug in and serve here at Church of Bergen. So every uh, possible way that you can serve, you'll be able to contact or, or speak with one of those ministry heads uh, after both service on January 26th. So hopefully see you guys there. Now we go to uh, elect exiles. First Peter, um, we we took a break right at the right after the end of November to go through a Herald series, and just as a, by way of reminder, <clears throat> the First Peter series is called Elect Exiles. Kind of this strange dichotomy: elect and exiles. This, this idea of elect means that you are chosen by God to be saved and one of His own. You as a sinner are undeserving of God's love and mercy and kindness and rescuing, and yet he chooses to save you. And so that gives you a sense of rock-solid identity and assurance. When God chooses to hold on to someone, he won't let go. That gives you confidence and courage to fulfill your other, the other side of this as an exile, an exile, someone you are away from home. Someone lives in, in France and they come to visit the United States. It might be a little strange. They're in exile. This is not their, their place. So for the Christian, this world is not your true home. There's a kind of a subterranean, subconscious feeling of homesickness. I can't wait for Jesus to bring the kingdom that he is building here on earth. And so we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. With this rock-solid identity as an elect chosen one of God by grace, we do not deserve this, we go out as exiles proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. And that was the whole point of, of doing First Peter here at Church at Bergen is we want to encourage each and every one of us. First John was all about loving one another, the inward focus. First Peter then is kind of that bendward, outward, bending outward on mission. And I've been hearing some really, Pastor Mike and I and the elders have been hearing some really encouraging stories about how you guys begin to share your faith uh, with people. So we look forward to, to hearing more of them. Well, uh, today's going to be a tough, tough message. Um, it's going to be a tough call that God has for us. And so I'm going to ask the Lord for help. I'm going to pray that the Spirit of God will be poured out upon me and upon your hearts as we dive in. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are lavish not only in the giving of your son, but after he died and rose and ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of your throne, the Spirit of God was in his hands and he poured it out upon us. I ask that you would pour out your Spirit 
upon me, upon these people, that you would make us eager to treasure Jesus more, to love Jesus more, to find our hope in him more. I say with the psalmist, would you be gracious and hear my prayer? You have put more joy in our hearts than the world has when their grain and their wine abound. You've put a sovereign, divine joy found in Jesus alone that can never be shaken into our hearts that is detached from the things of this world. Would you put that into our hearts this morning through your word? In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. I want to talk to you today about the seemingly impossible call of the Christian. The seemingly impossible call of the Christian. God calls a lot of us to do different things. Some of us he calls to, to be pastors. Some of us he calls to be teachers. Some of us he calls, to, he calls all of us to love our neighbors. He calls us to be generous. He calls us to be kind. He calls us to do acts of mercy and justice. But today's call, I would argue, is the most difficult call for the Christian. It's the hardest of all. Because it goes against the very fiber of what we believe to be just. Let's look at it. First Peter chapter 3. We'll be in First Peter chapter 3 this morning. If you don't know where First Peter is, it's towards the end of the Bible. You can just start in Revelation and kind of work your way back and you should find First Peter pretty quickly. Chapter 3 verse 9. Here's the call. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary... Bless, for to this you were called. There's the calling. You were called to this. Every Christian was called to this. This world is full of evil. This world is full of vicious insults and cut downs. It's full of reviling. If you don't know what reviling is, I could just imagine a couple people being like, what does reviling mean? It's just a vicious insult meant to just harm somebody. And, and some of you have been the objects are maybe still the object. Some of you have been the object and you're still suffering the, the consequences of being the target of evil and injustice and insult and reviling. And everything in you wants to retaliate. And God says to the very opposite, to overcome that impulse that seems natural and right. And frankly, for some of you, it probably is. And God says, don't do that. Resist that urge and do the opposite. Don't, don't, don't give in to the natural impulse I'm calling to you to something supernatural. So for example, when your coworker throws you under the bus and blames you for something you never did, God might call you to love them and speak kindly of them behind their backs no matter what. It doesn't matter. So you, you can speak truth, right? Your boss comes to you and says, is this actually happening? You can speak truth. No, I didn't do that. But when it comes to this person who threw you under the bus, God is calling you to be kind to them, to love them. When you talk about them to the rest of the office, even though everyone knows they threw you under the bus, you only speak words of love and kindness and gentleness about them. Or... When, you, when your waitress is prideful and disrespectful to you, intentionally, almost spiteful, maybe God expects you not only to give them a tip, 
but double it. And then write a precious, cute little note on it telling them how much you love him or her and will pray for them. You even leave your phone number and tell them you can reach out for anything. No one laughed in the first service. I'm not really sure why you guys are laughing. but or, or when your friend betrays you for the third time, fourth time, fifth time, sixth time, and you've forgiven them and covered their offense, rather than just casting them off, maybe God expects you to buy them a $50 Amazon gift card and leave a note telling them how much you love them and you will never leave them nor forsake them no matter what they do. Or even worse, maybe a, an act of terror comes into a school and takes out your six-year-old daughter. And you stand in the courtroom and see the person who took your daughter's life. What does, what's God call you to do in that moment? You can, I mean, you can look it up on the internet. You, you can see some powerful testimonies of some Christians who have done some unbelievable acts of divine forgiveness in the courtroom of someone who took someone, a loved one's life. And there's something palpable and powerful about that, something supernatural that just the world has nothing, they don't know what to do with it. And this is what God is calling every single one of us to. And it seems impossible because it goes against the very fabric of justice built into our world. To overlook offenses seems wrong, but it is what God calls you to. And if you try to do this, if you try to obey this call on your own, without the family of God and the local church, you won't make it. Which is why Peter begins the way that he does in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So it says, finally, all of you. So just a little bit of context. Peter had just been, back, starting back in chapter 2, he had been addressing different kinds of people and how they are to submit to authorities in their life in a way that honors Jesus, especially those who treat them poorly. So he addressed how do you submit to governmental authorities in a way that honors Jesus. And then he addressed how do servants submit to their masters, especially in the workplace authorities in a way that honors Jesus. And then he addressed wives, particularly the wives who are married to men who are not Christians. How do they submit to his leadership in a way that honors Jesus? And then he even addresses husbands. How do they love and serve their wives in a way that honors Jesus? So he addresses these individual groups of people, and then in verse 8 here, he's kind of calling the whole team together as one. So the illustration I used in the first service, I don't know if maybe some of you guys uh, played football, right? You, kinda, you have these, these film nights, these team meetings, but you eventually you divide up into different positions. The wide receivers address the wide receiver coaches. The offensive line addresses the offensive line. The defensive line coach addresses the defensive linemen. But at the end of the night the head coach kind of calls the whole team back together in the auditorium and addresses them as one. That's kind of what he's doing here. Finally, all of you. I just addressed individual groups. Now I got something to say to every single one of you. And he lists five characteristics that are essential for the local church to have to be a sufficient support system in this seemingly impossible call. And rather than unpack each of these terms, I just want to focus on something interesting that Peter does here. If you notice, the first and the fifth characteristic 
has to do with how we think with each other. Unity of mind and a humble mind. You think the same and you think about other people as if they are better than you, more important than you, more significant than you. Then in the second and the fourth characteristic, he addresses how you feel towards each other. Sympathy and a tender heart. So it goes from the head, he's working down into the heart, and then right smack dab in the middle is this term brotherly love. Greek word is Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And what many biblical scholars believe is that Peter intentionally lists out these characteristics like this to put brotherly love at the center to make it clear that the family unit of the church is what will hold you together. Familial affection, remembering that the person sitting next to you, if they have hope in Jesus, they are a brother or a sister in Christ. And they are with you. They're stuck with you in the local church. Church of Bergen, we need each other. We need each other to make it through this difficult call. Seemingly impossible call. But here's the thing. The good news is you don't have to come into church in strength and beauty. You can come in weakness and in frailty. Right? That's like, because the Christian life is hard. The forgiveness of Jesus costs you nothing, but following Jesus will cost you everything. When Jesus died on the cross, the forgiveness was eternal and paid in full. It was a free gift. But you got to follow Jesus now. That's hard. And if you try to do it on your own, if we try to do it on our, you try to do the, the Lone Ranger cowboy Christian life, you're not going to make it. I can't tell you, my, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. We were making dinner together. And I, we were, were almost, almost had to confess, we're a little bit envious of some of the young adult crowds here in their 20s. Because my wife and I, when we, were, when we were kind of in our 20s, we were kind of doing the church hopping thing. We weren't really plugged into a church. We didn't really have a church home. And now here we are, I'm, I'm mid, mid-30s or something. I'm not going to tell you my age. Mid-30s now. And, uh, and it's just, I, I look back on those times when I didn't have the church. And I was like, How, what was I thinking? And so if you were here and you're like in your 20s and you're like, a, like this is your church home, like you're in, you're in a good place. Like that is amazing that we have so many people in their 20-year-olds who are plugged into the local body. You are safer in the church than outside of the church. And I understand that some of you have maybe seen some horrible things in the church, and for that, we have a lot of confessing and asking for forgiveness to do. But we are a lot of hypocrites. We all need Jesus. And so that's why you got to find a healthy church, one where Jesus Christ is lifted up high and his grace is poured out in the gospel. So that when you do see and experience things in the church kind of hurt you a little bit, at least Christ is lifted up to amend you and to heal you and to reconcile things. So we need the church to make it through this seemingly impossible call. And this is, here's the other great thing, is it doesn't have to be a pastor to be the one who encourages you. If the Spirit of God is empowering you and you are filled with Scripture, and you have confidence and faith that the Spirit will lead you even in small talk conversation. That's one of the, a big switch in my life. I used to think that the Spirit of God really only helped you in preaching and like counseling and like serious conversations. No, no, no. He, he even leads you in small talk. 
Even when I'm, when I'm engaging with, with some of you, right, on, on a Sunday morning, you can know. I, I'm, I'm saying prayers in my head, Lord, just guide my conversation right now. If I'm going to meet somebody for lunch, Lord, just guide my conversation. Meeting somebody for coffee, Lord, just guide my conversation. If the Spirit of God is in you, he has called every one of us to parakaleto. That's just a Greek word for to call alongside. You come alongside somebody, put your arm around them, and call out to them in encouragement. That's why we did, about a year ago, we did the Caring for One Another initiative to encourage you all that with the Spirit of God in you, you can move toward people and ask them two questions. How are you doing? And how can I pray for you? And you, you ask those two questions with, with authenticity and humility and confidence. You don't know what you're going to say, but Lord, are you gonna, I trust you, Lord, you're going to help me in this conversation. And there are times that I'm in conversations with the people and I'm like, this conversation is too deep. Let's get together some other time. Let's get, let's get a lunch sometime. I actually had a, I was talking with a guy today and I was like, whoa, he dropped a big question. I was like, whoa, this, I can't talk about this in 10 minutes. Let's talk a little bit, but hey, let's, let me give him a number and we'll get together to do like a, you know, a lunch sometime. Now here's the thing. Even, even if we do have the church, this is not a perfect church, right? You've probably been let down by some people in the church. Pastor Mike and I, some of the elders have probably let you down for that. We are very sorry. We are not a perfect church. And so the, the church, the people here, it, it's great and it is necessary, but it isn't enough. That alone isn't enough. Because just coming alongside someone and say, hey, come on, you can, you can do it. You can keep not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but bless your enemies. Eventually, simple words of encouragement can't sustain to the end. You need something bigger, greater, more eternal pulling you forward. Which is what the rest of the sermon is about. If you notice, I've been saying that this is a seemingly impossible call. It just seems impossible. The rest of the sermon is about how this seemingly impossible call is made possible. So if you look back in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. There is a something you are motivated by ahead of you. Friends, you can endure anything if the reward is great enough. So here's an illustration I thought of this week. Imagine a young boy, his 17th birthday is Monday. I grew up in Oklahoma, and you could drive at 16, so I thought it was strange. New Jersey is always weird. 17 is the age, right? Is that right? Yes? Okay, so I thought it was weird. But his 17th birthday is on Monday, and he gets home from school on Friday. And his father meets him in the front yard as he's doing the walk of shame from the bus stop. And his dad says, I expect you to paint the entire house by the end of this weekend. And if you finish by Sunday evening, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to take you to McDonald's. I'm going to buy you a Happy Meal, my treat. Is he painting that house? No, in no way. 
Dad, you're going to have to enjoy the half meal by yourself, all right? I'm going to hang on my friends. Rewind, right? Rewind. He walks, and his dad meets him in the front yard, and he says, I expect you to paint this house by the end of this weekend. And if you finish by Sunday evening, here's what I'll do. I will buy any brand new car of your choice. Any car. Son, if you finish that house by Sunday evening on Monday morning, we can skip school. All you have to do is point to the car and I will buy it. Cash, paid in full, yours, in your name. Is he painting that house? He is painting that house. He will turn off his phone. He will not eat. He will not sleep. He will ignore his friends. He will ignore all parties. It doesn't matter how painful it is. It doesn't matter how, how sore his shoulder gets doing the karate kid thing, you know, because the reward makes it all worth it. It was worth it. And he keeps his eye on the prize. He keeps his eye on the reward. And his dad comes out and he's like, how you doing, son? I'm doing great, dad. I'm going to get that car. Are you tracking with me? Here's the thing. That car that the kid gets is perishable. It is fadeable, and it is defilable. It will end up in the, in the junkyard someday. But for the Christian, 1 Peter chapter 1 said, there is an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled, and it is unfading, kept in heaven for you. The reward is infinitely greater than a silly car. If the reward is great enough, you can endure anything. You see, back in chapter two, when Peter was talking to servants and masters, he was calling, it was, he was, he, it's almost the same thing. He's calling you to endure unjust shame and suffering. But in chapter two, he was calling you to remember something that happened in the past, what Jesus did for you on the cross. Here, he's bringing something in the future. So you don't just look behind you at Jesus, you also looked ahead to the reward that's coming in Jesus. If the reward is great enough, you can endure anything. In fact, when Peter says that you may obtain a blessing, that word obtain is this idea of inheriting something. It's the same similar word used back in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, similar word there that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And if you want this, you can have it. But you must endure in this seemingly impossible call. If you want to obtain the blessing, you bless others to get the blessing from God. In the future, if you forsake this calling, the inheritance will not be yours. Now, if you're a thinker, you might be asking yourself, so if I don't choose to follow this call of blessing those who give me evil, will I not get the inheritance? I mean, that seems to be precisely the way that Peter's arguing, right? Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Do this, 
Bless those who do evil to you that you may obtain a blessing. If you want this, be faithful in this. And then Peter brings in a quote from Psalm 34. It's a chapter in the Old Testament, a song that David, King David wrote, which is all about God delivering his people from afflictions. And he says, God argues the same way in Psalm 34 in the Old Testament. And God's saying the same thing to us today. He says in Psalm 34, For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Anybody in here want to love life? Anybody in here want to see good days? I have never, ever, ever, ever met the guy who was like, I want to hate life and see terrible days, soul-rotting days. I've never met that guy. So if you want to love life and see good days, if you want that, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If you desire to love life and see good days in the future to come from the hand of the Lord, you must be faithful in this thing. And even the language that, Psalm, that King David uses in Psalm, in Psalm 34 is similar to what Peter's calling you. Keep your tongue from evil. Do not revile in return when someone reviles you. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Live at peace with everyone as long as it is possible. Now, let's also be clear. Peter is not preaching some your best life now prosperity gospel. Because Psalm 34 does seem to be saying, if you do these things, life's going to be awesome. I was just talking to someone after the first service about how why is it that even those people who do good, life is actually terrible? What Peter's doing here, in fact, if you actually go to Psalm 34 and read after this quote, it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. So he's, Peter's saying, this, he's interpreting Psalm 34 here eschatologically. You're like, what's that word mean? That, it's a big, big, big $300 word, which means future end times. He's interpreting something that seems to be talking about life here and now, but is actually meant to be talking about the days coming in the future when Christ returns. So, if you desire to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, lift and speaking deceit, turn away from evil and do good, seek peace, pursue it. If you do that, you may taste some of the blessing here in this life. But it isn't guaranteed. It isn't promised in this life. The promise is in the life to come. That is where the promise lies. You may taste it here in this life in tidbits, you may, but you may not even taste it at all. The promise is coming with Jesus Christ in the life to come. And that is where the inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, is being kept. Where? In heaven for you. Again, so we are faithful in the call to get this inheritance. Now, if you're also a thinker, again, you're probably wondering, that almost sounds like you can earn your salvation. You can earn the reward in heaven. You can merit heaven. That is not 
what he is saying. In fact, if you remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter made it abundantly clear, it is according to his great mercy that he caused you to be born again to this living hope. Salvation is by grace through faith. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't merit it. It is totally a free gift. When Jesus died on the cross, all the sins of the world were placed upon him, past, present, future. And when you believe in him, the forgiveness of Jesus is yours. You are reconciled to God. You have the promise of the reward in Christ as a free gift. But it's, it's coming in the future. And we have this life between the moment you trust in Jesus until the moment that you see Jesus face to face. You have to endure to the end. If you stop short, if you jump off of Christ, if you forsake this calling and you say, I'm done with this, I don't want to do this anymore, the inheritance will not be yours. In fact, Peter talks about this, this same way right after he talks about the, the inheritance in chapter one. The very next verse, he says this. In this you rejoice, that is this inheritance that is coming. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's an inheritance that is coming, but between the moment you trust in Christ and the time when you receive it in Christ, the road to heaven is not a smoothly, freshly paved road. Any of you guys love driving on freshly paved roads? It is just good. It's just soothing, right? You're driving on some bumpy road, you hit that smooth part, and you're like, oh. The road to heaven ain't like that. It is a, I said in the first service, forgive me, New Jersey, it is a pothole-infested New Jersey road. You're going to get some flat tires. You're going to get some flat tires. Just this, past, just this past Christmas Eve service, my wife and I went to the first service. She left. I stayed for the second one. She called me. She had a flat tire. I had to leave the second service to change a flat tire. It's all good, though. The, the neighbors came out. We talked to them about the church, and so hopefully they'll come. It's all good. So you're going to get some flat tires. Some of you are probably going to get some wrecks. Some of you are probably going to get some really bad wrecks. Some, of peop some people are probably going to try to run you off the road. It doesn't matter, though. You, if, you ha if your car breaks down, you get out and you walk to heaven. You just keep going. Because if you, you must endure to the end. Jesus said, it is those who endure to the end who will be saved. So if you get out of the car, you're like, I'm done, I, I'm done. I'm done. And you sit on the side of the road, that's where you're going to end up. You have to endure to the end. The pathway to heaven is one of affliction, trials, pain, and suffering. And only those who endure to the end will receive the eternal blessing in Christ. But what assurance do we have that God will give this to us? What assurance do we have? Is there any like present assurance? Here's one of my favorite verses in Psalm 34. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. I mean, that's, that's the assurance. That God sees you, and God hears you. That's it. So he sees every cry. He sees every painful moment. He sees every difficult trial. He never overlooks anyone of his children who's going through trials. You know what we do when we see someone sobbing in the corner? We get awkward and kind of like move the other way. The Lord presses in. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says that God is not unjust so as to overlook your labor of love and your work of faith. If God were to miss something, if his eye were to not notice one of his children going through trials, he would be unjust. He would be calling his justice into question. But if there's one thing we know about God, he is passionate about the vindication of his glory and name. So he will see to it that his justice is preserved. Therefore, he will not overlook you. He sees it. And he sees it. He doesn't just see it, though. It says that his ears are open to their prayer. Every single cry of your heart, he hears it. He is never too busy to hear one of his children cry out. And here's the thing. You don't have to have a lot of words to your prayer. You don't have to have fancy religious sayings in your words. Sometimes you don't even have words. I can't tell you how. I mean, here's, here's how... Here's how I see the, the cries of our hearts. Here's the visual that, I, that I've come up with in my mind that helps me understand that our, our hearts are like a deep well. And as you get deeper, it goes deeper into some of our deeper cries and desires. So at the surface level, it might be, God, I desire to get home safe. Would you preserve me as I get home safely? The next level might be, Lord, um, I've got a tough uh, job interview tomorrow. Would you, would you help me do the job? And the next level might be, my daughter's been really sick this week, Lord. Would you just keep her safe? Would you heal her, make her better? The, the next level might be, Lord, I don't know if I can go any longer in life. And that's deep. And some cries are deeper. You don't even know what's down there. Like we don't even have a rope long enough to get down there. We don't even have a flashlight bright enough to see down there. But the Spirit of God is able to go down in there and identify and pull out the very desires and cries that we have that we don't even know are there. So let me just encourage you. As one of the pastors here, some of my prayers are like this. Lord, you know. And that's it. Because I, I, I've just got this feeling, it's like this deep, kind of unidentifiable something down in there. I don't even know what it is. So I just say, Lord, you know. And I, I have confidence that he hears that. And you can have confidence too. Like even in a split moment, like let's like say you're going to work. Let's get really nitty gritty. You're going to work and you get, you drive in your parking spot and you just hate your job. You're just hating it. Everyone there hates you and you're just trying to do a good job and you just don't know and you're sitting in the, and you just say, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. That's it. And he hears it and he attends to it. He doesn't overlook it. And I mean, that's, that's going to hold you fast. So you don't have to have a lot of words to your prayer. 
And this is what makes a seemingly impossible call possible. You need the support of the church family. You need a reward that is great enough. And you just need to know that the Lord sees you and hears you. And that's going to keep you faithful to the end in this seemingly impossible call. Now, if you are faithful in this calling, if you are faithful in this calling, Peter, the author of this letter to a Christian church 2,000 years ago, is telling us today, you need to be ready for something. If you're faithful in this, you need to be ready for something. Because if there is one thing that confuses and confounds culture today, it is Christians who are relentlessly blessing and kind to those who do evil to them. They're like the Energizer Bunny. They just keep coming back with more kindness, more love. And it seems like nothing they do wavers them. It's like they've got a hope that's otherworldly. And they can smell it. And they come to you and they're going to say, why are you the way that you are? I see how people treat you. I see how people talk to you. I've seen how I have talked to you. And nothing seems to phase you. And you keep, it doesn't crush you. You just keep coming back in kindness and love and blessing. In fact, you're just ridiculous in how you bless me with stuff. Where, where is your hope? Because it's not in this life. Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's another way of saying if you are relentless in this call to do good to everyone, especially those who do evil to you, chances are you're not going to experience a lot of pushback. If you're a good person, there's a good chance things will go well. But, there's no guarantee, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, those who do evil to you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here it is. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. How do we do it? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's hard for some of us. Gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is better that you suffer for doing good if that should be God's will and for doing evil. So, if you are faithful in this call, you must be ready to make a defense because someone's going to ask you about it because it, this world doesn't know how to categorize people like that. And when they come at you, they, you don't have to be afraid of them. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. The thing that keeps you secure is the holy, tangible presence of Christ within you. Everywhere you go, you carry Christ within you. And the reason, what you should fear more 
is dishonoring Christ on the inside than your reputation on the outside. What you fear more is dishonoring the name of Christ. So you will endure everything as long as Christ's name in you as you carry it is preserved because you treasure him more than anything else. And that's going to be strange to people. And they're going to ask you about it. And it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. So this is actually where we get the idea of apologetics when it says make a defense. Be prepared to make a defense. The Greek word is apolo- What is it, Kevin? Apologia, right? I almost just forgot there. Apologia, right? So that's where the apologetics from. So you're, you're, you're making, if someone asks you, why do you believe what you believe? And you make a defense. You, you explain your hope. Now, this, don't get too intellectual here. This isn't necessarily talking about, here's the reason why you can trust the, the, the original manuscripts and the scripture. Here's why you can, you know, here's how you can understand the, the origin of evil and why God allows bad things to happen to good people. And there's, there's, a, there's a time and a place for that but it's much simpler what this is talking about. Because this isn't necessarily someone who's, who's attacking and trying to, try to, to, try to pick holes in you. This is someone who already smells something divine in you. And they're like, can, can you just tell me about that? What is that? So very simply, if someone were to ask me, I would just simply say, look, we, we can talk all day long about you know, apologetics and why, do we, you know, why can you trust the Bible and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, man, like, that's not what makes me love Jesus. The reason why I have hope in Jesus is because in Christ, I find something more satisfying than anything else in this world. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got three little girls. I've got a great home. I've got a great job. I love passing you guys with Pastor Mike and the elders. But with Jesus, there's something better. I've tasted some glory in sports and things like that. And I've lost those things. And when Christ came in, he was so much better. So I, I'm so, I, I, don't, I don't really feel like I have to explain myself because I just know I'm a sinner. Jesus is amazing. He did everything necessary to pay for my sins and to guarantee me an everlasting future hope. And when I heard that message, I couldn't. I couldn't say no. That's all it has to be. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. So you stay faithful to this, holding fast to Christ and his holy and precious presence will keep you stable as you preach the hope found in Christ. And as you do this, with gentleness and respect, eventually people are going to reap shame. says, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, this is not your aim. Your aim is not to shame. Your aim is to be faithful. Your aim is to be gentle. Your aim is to be respectful and kind and honest and authentic and humble in your explanation of your hope in Jesus, and you let God do the shaming. It says in Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will reap, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The Lord will reward you. So you hold fast to the reward, 
and the presence of Christ within you, doing good to them and leave the shaming up to God. And remember that you're not hoping for that though. Your hope, your hope is that they would repent and believe in Jesus as you do. Now I thought about this. I can imagine some of you here who are Christians and you're kind of thinking, I've never really experienced anything like this in my life. I've never really experienced like deep persecution or suffering or pain or injustice. I've never really been the object of someone's like ridicule. It's been pretty easy for me, relatively speaking. Should I like go looking for this? Right? I mean, I, I, I fell prey to this. I was kind of like, man, my, my Christian life's been pretty easy. Should I like go on the mission field and throw myself in front of like something and like die for Jesus or something? Like, this is why this last phrase here is helpful for some of you to just calm down a little bit. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. If that should be God's will than for doing evil. So don't go looking for it. Just be patient. Stay faithful. And when the day comes, have confidence that the spirit of glory, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, that the spirit of glory will rest upon you and of God will rest upon you in that day. So I just want to ask one question in light of kind of the, the big idea, which is this, this reward ahead of you, which is pulling you forward to remain faithful in this call. Do you feel free to pursue this calling for the reward? Do you feel free to aim for the reward? Or do you feel like that's selfish? Do you feel, or have you bought the lie that Christianity is a life of absolute self-denial? I, I don't know. Yes, there is self-denial, but there's no such thing as absolute Self-denial, meaning you only do what God says and don't hope for anything in return, period. If he did not want you to hope that, he would not hold out the reward. Why would he hold the reward out if he doesn't want you to go get it? You are free to be motivated by the reward that is found in Christ I think some of us have bought the lie that you have to like not hope for the reward and so you just kind of like white knuckle it. You just kind of like, you just gotta take it and you just gotta do the Christian life and you gotta read your Bible and you gotta like pray and go to church. That just drives me crazy. I'm, I'm like, when people are like, why are you go to church? I'm like, because I love pursuing reward in Jesus. Why do you read your Bible? Because there's so much reward in here. I love to pray because there's so much reward in Jesus. I am after the reward because God is laying it before me. Now, it's not like it's apart from him. He's like, you don't want me. You want this thing over here. The reward at the end of the day. It's in his hands, but it's in front of him. And you get the inheritance along with Jesus. But Jesus is the best part. If you feel that you are not free to pursue the reward, let Hebrews 11.6 encourage you. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You are free to pursue this reward. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called that you 
may obtain, inherit, receive, grasp in Christ the blessing that is to come. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons to himself that we may be holy and blameless and above reproach to the praise of his glorious grace. This is what Jesus went to the cross for. He went to the cross to purchase this eternal blessing given to his children who don't deserve it. So as we take the Lord's Supper today, which we do every single week, maybe that's what you focus on. You fix your eyes on the reward that Christ purchased for you. And the crackers and the juice at each of these tables is a symbol and a sign of Christ's broken, broken body and shed blood. So as you're taking it, you're remembering what Jesus did to secure this inheritance if you are faithful to the end. We also want to make really clear, some of you have different church backgrounds. When the elders lay out the Lord's Supper here at this church, we are not laying it out as a way for you to have your sins forgiven by eating it. Your sins are forgiven by faith in Jesus alone. So when you're taking this, you're not taking it as a way to cover your sins from yesterday. And to stand in front before a holy and righteous God, you need righteousness. So you're not also taking this to get more righteousness. As you take the crackers and the juice, it is not increasing a sense of acceptability before God. This is the good news of the gospel. That forgiveness that you need and the righteousness you need is full, free, and instantaneous the moment you believe in Jesus. So what's this for? The purpose of this is it's given from Jesus as a way for him to strengthen and nourish your soul and your faith in him. It's a way of him. It's his gift to you as saying, when you take this, you need to know, I still love you. I'm still for you. I'm still with you. I'm still forgiving you. And you still have my righteousness. And I'm going to take care of you to the end. This is Jesus' tangible promise to you. Let me just pray, and as you feel led, you may come. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you do not call your children to just grunt through the Christian life. You actually lay before us an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance before us to allure us and to motivate us and to draw us forward And we thank you that we did not deserve this. By your mercy, you gave us new life and you awoke us to this. And you sent your son to pay the price to purchase this. I pray for anyone in here who is particularly downcast because they they don't know if they can continue to bless this particular person in their life. They've been doing it and they've been doing it over and over again. And they don't know if they can do it another day. I pray the Holy Spirit that you would be poured out upon them and would lift them up and would clear the windshield and they would look ahead and they would see the reward in Jesus that is coming their way 
if they stay faithful. We know you are faithful and have loved us with an everlasting love. And because of that, that draws us forward. Would you lead us? Would you awaken our hearts to the reality of this inheritance that is ours so we can pursue this, we can, we can go after this with joy and tenacity? Would you make this future blessing in Christ more tangible and real than a 401k? That it would become more motivating, more thrilling, more security giving. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.